there and welcome to the Bold Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Rawlings. We are so excited that you decided to join us today and we're looking forward to diving on into the first chapter of Mark. But before we do that, we really want to encourage y'all to head on over to our website at www.theboldmovement.com. On the first page that you come to, you'll notice that there's a questionnaire about halfway down. That's because this Wednesday, we're going to be starting our new segment on the podcast, Wednesdays Are For Questions. We would love to hear from you all with the questions you're dying to know, but maybe a little too embarrassed to ask. Also, check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right, girls, without further delay, let's talk about the Gospel of Mark. Right. Thank you so much for tuning in again. If you missed last week's, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. It's going to help put a lot of what we talk about today and following weeks into context. Guys, I'm so excited to um, teach this. So let's just go ahead and get started, okay? I'm going to read verse by verse, and I'm going to stop and talk about what we're reading as we go on. So bear with me. I have a lot of information and a little bit of time, but it wouldn't be the bold move if we didn't work it out that way, right? All right, let's go ahead and read verse one. (laughs) Oh, so many notes and notebooks. They're falling everywhere. I just have so many little goodies I want to share with you all. (laughs) All right, let's just go ahead and start reading. Mark chapter one, verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. If you guys will remember last week, we talked about the purpose of the gospel of Mark being to, to teach Gentiles the Jewish custom so that they could better understand the need and purpose of the Messiah, right? So I think it's beautiful that Mark starts his entire book off with the beginning, just like Genesis starts off in the beginning. Now, I wish I could say that I came up with that by myself, but I didn't. I got it from a commentary and I'm going to go ahead and quote it and I will link it in case you guys are interested in buying the commentary. It's fantastic. All right. For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no more momentous than the creation of the world, for in Jesus a new creation is at hand. I just think that is so stinking cool. If you remember, I also said that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus, and this is just one of those little tiny ways that it does. The next point I want to make in this verse one, and I promise I won't break down every verse this explicitly, but these are really good nuggets. The The word gospel in Greek is euangelion, okay? And in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word euangelion is used as a word that that describes the, um, like when, when soldiers went off to battle and they were victorious, they would send home the euangelion, the good news of their, victor- of their victory, of the, their victorious battle cry. So I think that's really neat that basically he opens up with the beginning of the victorious battle cry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Maybe that's just me, but I just thought that was a sweet little nugget. <laughs> All right. Moving on, verse 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you will uh, dive in and really look into this, you'll see that this is actually three different Old Testament passages um, being 
kind of like splished together to make that one statement in verse um, 2 and 3. And these passages, if you want to see for yourself, are Exodus 23, 20, Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, Mark only attributes this to Isaiah. There's a great reason for that, actually. A lot of times people who try to disprove Christianity or the inerrancy of scripture will use things like this passage to say that, see, it's wrong. It contradicts itself. It's not telling the truth, but that's not true. You have to remember, Mark was a Jewish man and he was writing um, to a Gentile audience, but he still has his tendencies. And, and it's very common in the first century to write and kind of like push different authors together and then attribute it to whoever influenced the passage the most. And especially in this case, because Isaiah um, was the defining element of the tapestry of the quotations, as the commentaries would say. And he was also considered the greatest of the prophets. So this really isn't that big of a deal if you have any kind of history background, especially in first century um, Israel. <laughs> this is pretty standard stuff. It's not that complicated. We'll actually do a blog post solely dedicated to that. But I just kind of wanted you to guys know that that's not a hard question to answer. Um. Also, John the Baptist is the fulfiller of Elijah's role as the forerunner of the Messiah. So you'll see a lot of the prophets uh, basically saying like the spirit of Elijah and stuff. This is John the Baptist. They're prophesying about John the Baptist. So this is just kind of one of those confirmations of the prophet coming. In verse 4, let's move on. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Uh, wilderness here, fun fact, is I want you to think more like desert. Uh, not necessarily like a wooded area forest. I live in Southern Ohio um, and and uh, the girls who work with me live in Northern West Virginia, Northern Kentucky. We all kind of meet. so And it's a lot of wooded area, but this is very desert. Think desert. And proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, this is really important. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, please listen to this. Repentance is to change one's mind, okay? I know a lot of times pastors will talk about doing the about face, like you're turning away from your sin. And yes, that is true. But I think that we've heard that so many times that it's just kind of like, yeah, 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 okay, next point. But this is actually really, really important. To the the word repentance is to alter one's understanding. So it's, it's to completely disregard who you were before, what you were before, and completely change your behavior. It's not apologizing and asking for forgiveness. That is not the same as repentance. Repentance is, God, this is bad. I am never doing it again, and I'm turning away from it. And one of the things that they're talking about here is not just repentance as Christians repent, but, but the repentance, the coming to faith and salvation. And whenever we think of someone coming to faith and salvation, I want you guys to remember something. I'm not saying altar calls are bad. Please do not take that away from what I'm saying. What I am saying is a lot of times there is a lot of emotion that is driven in the altar call. And there's nowhere in scripture that really talks about going forward and saying a prayer at the altar. I'm not saying it's bad. So if you were saved that way, I'm not criticizing. But what I am saying is Whenever you make a decision to follow Christ, 
it has to be based on a rational and willful decision and a willful act opposed to your emotional feelings. Emotion cannot be involved in this decision. You need complete logic. I am making a conscious choice to follow Christ, to give up my old life, and to take him on as my new identity. Emotions go up and down and they're fleeting. You're happy, you're sad. This has to be something that is completely, um, you are completely just sold out to. You've thought about it and you've truly decided to dedicate your life to God. There will be emotion involved once you make the decision. That's fine. I have no problem with that. It's a good feeling to be saved and to have a new identity and to feel loved and to know that you're forgiven for everything you've done against a perfect and sinless God. But I want you guys to really think about this. You cannot emotionally choose to follow God. You have to truly make the conscious decision to do it without emotion involved. That's the kind of repentance they're talking about here in verse 4. If we move on to verse 5, we see, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There were so many people doing this that it says all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem. That means there were so many people out there. It looked as if the entire capital city was out there joining John the Baptist. And this tells us he's a very popular guy. He's likable. People listen to what he has to say. He is telling the truth. He has his own disciples, which we'll learn about later, um, two of which actually go and follow Christ. I know, crazy. And really exciting stuff. Um very influential man, okay? Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. This is a big deal to Jews especially. And even as Gentiles, I think they would have known this. At this time, um, there, there were servants and slaves, but... It's not like it was in the 1800s. We have to kind of get that out of our um, understanding when it comes to Scripture. It was completely different. But um, at this point, it was a servant's job. They would wash your feet. Um, when, and there weren't, you know, cars at the time. So there was a lot of walking and it was desert. So I think 30 feet, you know. So it was the servant's job to wash the feet. But Jews especially, it was the Gentiles' job to wash their feet. Like, not even the Jewish servants did that. So it's basically like the lowest of the low. And so for John to say that he's not even worthy of bending down and tying the straps of Jesus, the coming Messiah's shoes, is a huge deal. That's saying this guy is that much above me. And I just thought that was a really fun fact. Um... I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a huge deal. He is claiming that Jesus has the power to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That is solely reserved for God. Only God can... Oh, God is the Holy Spirit. Only God can baptize someone in the Holy Spirit. And they knew this. This was like a huge deal. In those days, Jesus came from the Nazareth of Galilee came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Do not confuse the fact that Jesus was from from Nazareth with the fact that he took the Nazarite vow, because there's nowhere really in scripture that talks about him taking the Nazarite vow. For those who don't know what that is, um, you can't touch dead things. You can't drink wine. You can't cut your hair. And that's kind of where we get the idea of Jesus having that long, wispy, feathered out hair because he was from Nazareth. But that doesn't mean he took the Nazarite vow. We know he touched dead things because he rose people from the dead. So he's not going to break a vow, right? We know he drank wine because uh, last supper, hello. And there's nothing else in scripture that really shows us that he had long hair. And we do know that he did have a beard, though, because they said that part of the torture was plucking out his beard while he was being tortured prior to being hung on the cross. But nothing else in scripture really talks about long hair. So he probably would have had really short hair, actually. I just thought that was a fun fact for you. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being turned open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Okay. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels angels were ministering to him. We're going to wrap up soon, so I just wanted to break this down a little bit, and then we'll be done. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. Remember, the Old Testament points to Jesus. This is one of those times. If you'll remember, the Israelites were were led out of captivity into their promised land, and when they were not... When they didn't follow directions from God, they were punished and they were put out in the desert for 40 years, okay? And Jesus goes out into the wilderness after being led by the Spirit. He fasts and he comes back. But but while he's out there, he's being tempted, but 40 days. He's out there 40 days, just like the Israelites were out there for 40 years. And I kind of take this as Jesus saying... I'm doing what you couldn't, okay? Um, He was tempted by Satan, which tells us that temptation is not a sin. Um, So that's a good thing, right? Acting on temptation is. And I want to point this out too. He was with the wild animals. I thought that was just fascinating. No one ever talks about that. Well, you don't really think about it. He's out in the desert and you think, oh yeah, it's hot. He doesn't have food or water and I'm sure he's hungry and he's being tempted by Satan. Yeah, that sucks. But not just that, but there were wild animals, wild animals, craziness. And the angels were ministering to him. The word um, ministering in Greek, I'm going to butcher it, guys. Um, I'm not even going to say it, but it's the same word that they use um, when when using the word for deacons. So whenever the angels were ministering to him, it doesn't mean they were preaching to him. It means they were taking care of him. I thought that was a fun fact, too. All right, guys, that's all I have for you this week. I hope you tune in next week as we start um, with Jesus beginning his ministry. Thanks again so much for tuning in to The Bold Movement. I'll catch you guys next week.